Welcome back to the Lady Science Podcast, a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a writer, editor, and PhD student studying 20th century American culture and the history of the American space program in the 1960s. I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian of science and freelance writer with words in various places on the internet. I'm currently a regular writer on women in the history of science at smithsonian.com. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. When I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and managing research projects at the Chemical Heritage Foundation in Philadelphia. So this month, we're going to be talking about the history of birth control and reproductive rights. Uh, unsurprisingly, reproductive rights are again under attack in the United States. In early October, the Trump administration made it easier for businesses and nonprofits to deny women birth control coverage on religious grounds. So I don't know if it's appropriate or ironic that one of our essays this month is about birth control pioneer Dr. Hannah Stone. A little later in the podcast, we'll be hearing from Jennifer Young, who wrote that essay for us, and we'll be talking to her about um, Stone's activism, her work with Margaret Sanger, and the history of Planned Parenthood. But first, the three of us are going to share some work we've done on the history of reproductive rights. Uh, Anna and Layla will explain how early advertising for the pill complicates our usual narrative about birth control. And then I will talk a little bit about what a statue of J. Marion Sims in Manhattan can tell us about gender, race, and power in American history. So for the past couple of years, Layla and I have been slowly working on a research project about visual culture and birth control in the United States. And we first presented research from this project um, at an advertising panel at the Pop Culture Association Conference in Seattle last year. And the sort of heart of the project was combing through all these advertisements in medical journals. Um, so advertisements aimed at physicians. From We used stuff from the Journal of the American Medical Association and a couple of things from The Lancet to do some kind of comparative stuff between 19... 1960 and 1965 ish, um, to see how the pill, which was approved for contraceptive use by the FDA in 1960, was being marketed toward doctors. Um, and of course, at this time, when we say doctors, we're talking about almost overwhelmingly white male physicians, most of them probably like a little older. And what we found uh, in our research was a pattern across all categories of contraceptives, um, both hormonal and non-hormonal, so things like diaphragms and um, spermicidal jellies, things like that. Um, and the pattern is that the advertisers develop this sort of set of strategies that are used for marketing contraceptives specifically to physicians. So the advertisements emphasize the importance of physician intervention and control, um, so it's kind of constructing this um, physician who's the patient requires his intervention in order to um, use birth control. And they simultaneously construct this sort of ideal patient to whom the ideal doctor is prescribing. And the patient is always 
white, healthy, married, middle-class woman. She's in need of a physician's expertise for family planning. And the ads also draw on a set of assumptions that are very common in the 20th century about the dichotomy between nature and reason and utilize a kind of rhetoric of medicalization to convince doctors that the best expression of their control and expertise is to prescribe these birth control products. And the rhetoric of medicalization we found to be very integral and important to these advertisements. And it was important in the larger history of women's medicine and contraception. So I want to explain what exactly we're talking about. So in general, medicalization is when we define social ills or human conditions as medical conditions, and then we subsequently try to treat them as such. In healthcare, medicalization also sometimes is called pathologization, and that's the process by which a person becomes defined as their medical conditions and becomes the subject of a medical study. Uh, sociologically, medicalization defines the power relationship between patient and doctor in that the patient becomes a passive agent while the doctor becomes the active authoritative agent. So one of the results of this process is that healthy bodies are often pathologized because they deviate from a culturally constructed norm, which in the Western world, the norm is the cis white male body. So in this framework of medicalization, women's reproductive bodies are inherently pathologized as deviant from the male norm. So uh, in the 1960s, with the introduction of the pill, hormonal contraception became yet another way in which reproductive bodies could be medicalized. Menstruation then became a thing that needed to be treated rather than a natural part of the female body. There's actually an advertisement that refers to uh, birth control as therapy. Um, so therapy for what exactly? Um, so further, women were removed as, as authorities over their own bodily experience and replaced with the physician. So in the advertisements that we analyze, the physician figure is constructed in opposition to a female patient whose presence is sometimes uh, implied or actually, actually present and real in the advertisement itself. She is represented as uninterested in the medical matter of reproduction and considers pregnancy a mere matter of lifestyle and in some cases, it's constructed as simple vanity. The ideal patient embodied in these advertisements is the quote-unquote normal woman of the 1960s. And she conforms to certain demographic standards, like I mentioned before, white, married, middle class. And these ads reproduce these very common mid-century stereotypes about women and cater to the expectations and prejudices of a male medical establishment. So unlike the physician who is defined in these advertisements by his ability to actively intervene, the ideal patient is entirely passive and defers to the authority of her physician in matters of reproduction. Poor women, working class women, single women, women of color, um, women who couldn't tolerate or, or suffered from the side effects of hormonal contraceptives, which were pretty extreme in this period, and women who just simply didn't have access to contraceptives um, or access to the medical care that became necessary to receive contraceptives. Um, these women are written out of the histories that focus on this idealized patient and the sort of liberatory benefits that she gets from using contraceptives. So her story, this ideal patient, dominates his histories of women's reproductive liberation, but 
at least in part, this is this ideal figure is a, a total fiction manufactured by advertisers to sell birth control. And it reflects sexist mainstream ideas about women and appeals to a male medical establishment. Um, and so where these advertisers do acknowledge that women other than the ideal white middle class patient might use birth control, they do so with really stereotypical imagery of poverty or like embedded assumptions about the role of the medical establishment in in sort of stabilizing society. So one of the images we looked at is a picture of um, a poor woman who is sort of visually signified as being poor by she's wearing like a kerchief and hanging her laundry um, out of doors, which is, oh no, in the 60s. Yeah, (laughs) I guess like you're definitely poor if you put your clothes on a clothesline in the 60s. I don't know. Uh, And Part of the ad copy talks about the role of the physician in like helping these like um, benighted women who don't like um, they don't know what kind of strain they're putting on society by like having so many kids. And it's up to doctors to be able to fix that. So we'll include um, some of these images. But um, the the positive ads about like the lifestyle and uh, that you could have are reserved for like white women and the ads about doctors saving the world from overpopulation. That's where you find poor women, women of color. It's so uh, both that and uh, Layla, your comment before about uh, even, even for middle-class white women, it's they doctors kind of have to, there's this assumption doctors to push birth control on women and that it's a matter of lifestyle or vanity. And the crazy thing about all of this is, of course, the history of activism surrounding uh, birth control that we'll be talking about with uh, Jennifer a little bit later, that women that had to, uh, both middle class women and poor women and women in all parts of society had to push so hard to convince powerful white men that this was an important thing for them and now it's sort of been now that it's been sort of taken over by the medical establishment uh they're taking back that power by sort of saying oh no no they don't these ladies don't know what they're doing we have to be the ones that teach them about it uh and it's just maddening (laughs) uh fascinating and maddening yeah and i mean you can't really get away from the eugenic, you know, implications of that type of thinking. And especially consider remembering again, that these advertisements are directed at physicians themselves. And so it's the kind of eugenic thinking that was very prominent in, um, uh, medical science during this time was actually embedded in these advertisements for birth control too. So, um, some of the other advertisements that we looked at um, infantilized women. Uh, and one of the ads for Enovid specifically calls women, uh, quote, forgetful, quote, imperfect patients. Um, and by constructing women as kind of these forgetful, uh, scatterbrained people, um, they are required to refill every five months so they have women apparently have all this time on their hands to go back to the doctor every five months 
to get a refill. And so the copy on that ad says, uh, quote, you, remember the doctor, can count on it to bring your patient back on time for her six-month checkup. And it goes on to say that, quote, she knows that is the only way she can continue her dosage. It makes her it makes for practically perfect therapy. So there's that idea of this being therapy. They did the prescriptions in kind of this conscious way to bring women coming back every six months. That's ridiculous. I can't even imagine having to go every six months <laughs> to go get a birth control. And is that every five or six months? Do they mean like you have to go get a pelvic every five months or you just have to go to the doctor? I mean, either way it is like, it ensures that like healthy women are seeing a doctor twice a year, no matter what, in addition to like you know, other regular doctor things that they would be doing, getting a physical or whatever. And so um, if you want to use birth control, like you, you're basically signing a contract saying like, I will be investing a huge chunk of my um, time and money in um, being at the doctor and like participating in the medical establishment. Like it's going to change my life in the not insignificant way. And these advertisements, like, they're, I think they're interesting because they're directed at physicians and so patients would never see these. So they're not coy at all. They're just yeah. like, if you want to have um, more appointments on the books, like, start prescribing birth control. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the way that uh, the quote she knows that is the only way she can continue her dosage is that it's super it, it's creepy the power just, imbalance yeah yeah <laughs> yeah like this woman is totally and completely reliant on you to uh not get pregnant when she doesn't want to i mean it's just um the power imbalance is just so uh clear in these these advertisements and this whole issue of um uh, women taking um a daily medication like healthy women who don't have like a, a chronic condition First of all, it constructs being a woman as a chronic condition that you have to treat, basically. <laughs> but yeah, that menstruation is a right. is yeah. a ailment. <laughs> um, but like this is this is a super new and unusual. Uh, and so one of the things we want to look at in the future are like um, patient facing ads and how they kind of justify this. Would would be like for a lot of people would be maybe an intimidating thing to do, like to take a pill every day seems like kind of extreme or um, to see how um, the patient is constructed in patient facing ads. But I think there's just really interesting stuff here about um, the, the medical establishment and the way that birth control that's controlled by women, which is one of the things that gets sort of lauded about hormonal birth control about the pill in particular that women are in control of it. You don't have to ask a man to wear a condom and it gives you much more control. But the truth is it also gives your doctor much more control. Yeah. And so yeah. this idea of like a totally liberating um, woman controlled method of contraception is not the whole story because there's another sort of figure there that's exerting even more control over the process. And it's a man. It's not the man you're having sex with, probably, but so that's kind of what we're trying to do with this research. 
it's such a great example of yeah the way that like structures of power can stay the same even even if they they shift a little bit uh the the underlying structure of power of men having control over women's bodies maybe hasn't changed that much uh with with the uh with the pill becoming widespread uh and and the i think also crazy thing about about the ads is yeah, building on that idea that these, because these are doctor facing, they're sort of showing their hand. Uh, it, it it demonstrates that it was explicitly set up this way. To here, we we're losing power over here, so let's reconstruct this thing over here, uh, and we're gonna like literally do that and make sure that that patients are coming in regularly because they might not, you know, oh no, they might not come in those silly ladies. Uh, for regular checkups otherwise or they don't know things about their bodies so let's get them in here regularly yeah and you know the the idea that women you know can't keep track of their own periods and (laughs) is is also a ridiculous uh thing to think um and just one last thing about this advertisement because i want to make sure we get to the next one which deserves a a thorough lashing um (laughs) is that this is clearly aimed at that kind of married um, middle-class woman because poor women, working women, um, they don't have time to take off of work and be under this amount of supervision from a doctor. Um, That, you know, most of the women who uh, were working at this time Um, Poor women, immigrant women, women of color were working unskilled labor jobs. And it's not like they had a whole lot of uh, good benefits (laughs) uh, that allowed them to miss a day of work, right? Um, That missing a day of work could have really bad consequences. Um, And so this, you know, implies a lot about who they're assuming um, has the leisure time on their hands to be making doctor's appointments all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of thorough lashing... So one of the more sort of striking advertisements that we looked at um, is this full two-page spread for Enovid. And on the left side, you see this sort of non-specific indigenous tribal statue, which that's a problem in itself. That It's just like, oh, it's primitive. Um, on one side, and then you see a birth control pill pack on the other side, and the the statue kind of curves to the right in a way that like points toward the birth control pack. And so the copy underneath says from ritual to reason. Uh, <laughs> and it, so it associates this, this tribal statue with like prehistory magic, the primitive, um, and also by association, women managing their, uh, their reproduction on their own and that it is much preferable to use reason um in the rest of the ad copy it associates the pill pack with science and ethics and with intelligent family planning so it's setting up this whole dichotomy between um the completely backward and unscientific primitive way of of doing things before in the olden times um, and also how women have been doing it for centuries. Um, contrast with science and ethics and things which are clean and modern 
and not primitive or whatever. So I think this ad deserves a little bit of discussion because there's a lot going on here. So much going on. I mean, I can't get over how racist this uh, image is because it's uh, the they just kind of picked a nondescript uh, tribal looking statue to stand in for all kind of backward indigenous women's knowledge. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, the the kind of racial uh, undertones of this are um, pretty egregious. Um, And then also associating that, you know, that image with the copy itself, you know, as, you know, backwards, prehistory, all of that stuff. So um, they've created this framework in which anything that is not using modern medical science is automatically framed as being backward. Um, With the indigenous statue with that, you know, then you've got the the racist implications with that as well. Then also has, yeah, just the... The wording of ritual to just represent everything that anyone knew about uh, nature or women knew about their bodies uh, is all by itself pretty terrible and racist. And uh, and then you add the statue on top of it to just be like, in case you didn't get the subtext, we're going to make it text and we're going to make it very clear what we're talking about and just how racist we're being. And the, I mean, and this, uh, they're really pulling on a lot of embedded um, ideas that we've had for a really long time that associate women with nature and men with science. And that um, the way that the image actually, you know, works is and how it curves to the right and goes into the, the statue turns into the pill pack is that you actually have this, um, implied idea that science is eclipsing, you know, natural knowledge. And um, when you have those gendered underpinnings of that with um, women being associated with nature and men being associated with uh, science, you've got that whole idea of control coming back into it, that um, the control that women once had is now being completely eclipsed uh, by, um, men and this idea of intelligent family planning and ethical family planning with the pill. You can see that image for yourself in the show notes. Uh, with this project overall, what we're trying to do is to complicate that popular narrative of birth control as a tool of women's liberation by showing that from its beginning, it has been yet another tool of modern, uh, medicine to exert social control over women's bodies And so by theorizing the absences in these advertisements, so looking at what and who is missing, uh, we can better critique our modern perspective of reproductive rights, which is often exclusionary still to women of color, immigrant women, um, and especially women with disabilities and trans folks, too. Yeah, and I think it's it's really interesting how uh, this project of yours represents something that you'd like to study a little bit of any history, but especially uh, women's history to, to see that all of our, you know, grand narratives about progress moving in one direction uh, just aren't, aren't true. And that there's always a lot of like complicated ups and downs, but that also uh, something can be both kind of liberating and stifling sometimes simultaneously. 
Uh, and it's, it's just, it's a really fascinating study. So thanks for sharing. Yeah. And I want to be clear that we're not saying don't use birth oh, control yeah. <laughs> and don't go to the doctor. I want to be real clear about that. <laughs> we're just saying that um, what you've hit on, Rebecca, with how some things can be both liberating in one way, but then on the other hand, also not be. Um, and that we need to not embrace certain things as being, you know, uncritically liberating. Um, so that's all we're really saying yeah. here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you, please go get your IUD if you want, <laughs> you know, <sighs> go get your annual pap, you know, do that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so Rebecca, what do you have for us to talk about today? Yeah. Speaking of mo- many things that modern medicine being great, but the way we got here having some problems, uh, so I'm sure everyone remembers the summer, uh, when a lot of terrible things happened this summer. Uh, but one of them was people were talking a lot about statues and public memorials. Uh, in particular, there was the white supremacist march in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, that sparked a conversation about the presence of Confederate memorials in major cities. Uh, It's hardly the first time that I have witnessed a debate over what to do with these kinds of statues. Um, But it did, uh, there was, it felt like there was this moment where many more historians and public figures and journalists and other powerful people were being very explicit about what they thought should be done with Confederate statues, which was to get rid of them. Uh, And I thought that was just really interesting because in previous conversations, there'd been a lot more wishy-washiness about it, and it just it felt like a moment when uh, a lot of things uh, were were coming together in, I don't really want to call it consensus, but there was kind of a consensus growing, at least. Uh, bear with me. I promise I'm going to get us back to reproductive rights in a second. Uh, let's face it. America, we have memorials to many people who did terrible things, uh, not just Confederate generals. And one of those memorials is located in Central Park in Manhattan, and it's dedicated to a 19th century doctor named J. Marion Sims. Uh, I'm imagining that most people who walk by this statue probably don't even notice it. Uh, Interestingly, there is a statue of Christopher Columbus nearby, and I imagine that many people walking through Central Park are more likely to roll their eyes at that statue. Uh, But the Sims statue is significant. Uh, And in late August, an organization called the Black Youth Project staged a protest in front of the statue. And later, an anonymous activist graffitied the word racist across the statue's base. And that's because Sims, uh, who has been called the father of modern gynecology, was also an Alabama slave owner who regularly experimented on the enslaved women that he owned. Uh, He's most known for figuring out a treatment for a certain kind of fistula that can develop during childbirth, and he perfected that treatment in surgeries conducted on these enslaved women without anesthesia and without their consent. Uh, So I wrote about uh, an essay for the Lady Science blog about Sims and his statue and the way that the conversation about problematic public memorials has really shifted. Uh, But right now, I want to talk a little bit about Sims in relation to today's topic. And with that in mind, uh, there are two issues I want to talk about. 
Um, the first is kind of the story of uh, Sims's medical contributions um, and that vaginal fistulas became much more common in the 19th century uh, in women uh, in childbirth, uh, in part because of the way that uh, labor changed and more male doctors began using forceps on women in labor. Uh, one of these weird uh, counterintuitive facts of history is that childbirth becomes more dangerous in the early 19th century because more and more women go to male doctors uh, who use these different methods and not midwives who had uh, traditionally taken care of women in labor and uh, tended to actually be more knowledgeable uh, at this time period. Uh, and there's a, there, there are many books that have been written on this. Uh, the one that I think is a great read for both scholars and uh, the general public is Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's uh, A Midwife's Tale, which among other things kind of goes into the historical shift that was happening in the late 18th, early 19th century uh, around uh, uh, obstetrics and gynecology and power shifting from traditional midwives uh, to quote unquote educated male doctors. Uh, but the point here that's crazy to me is that Sims is solving a problem that he as a um, male uh, medical professional is creating, at least to, to a certain degree, creating through their medical practices. And uh, it's just, it ties so terribly into this very long history of men taking control over women's bodies, uh, especially in issues related to reproductive rights that uh, in so many ways continues to this day. Yeah, I like that you brought up that the, it, it is a counterintuitive fact that it was more dangerous for women uh, and infants in the 19th century. Uh, and a lot of people, I don't think, know that because we have this idea that of modern science being um, so closely related to progress. Um, and so if we have all of these modern uh, technologies and uh, tools to help with childbirth, then obviously that was progress. Um, but the things that often get written out of those stories are the women who underwent those procedures before we could have progress at all. Um, and <laughs> there's one thing that I wrote, in the, like the very first issue of Lady Science was looking at this problem with The Nick, this, that awful show with... Uh, <laughs> um, and that one of the main storylines uh, in the first season was trying to figure out a certain procedure um, for women. And uh, a lot of women died from that. And he experimented on women, his procedure that eventually, I guess, worked. Um, but, you know, the whole, the whole thing is you don't even get those women's stories. And um, it's all about how he was able to make his procedures work. Um, and what that did was leave a whole lot of dead women behind him. Um, and so um, those stories are very much often written out of um, popular histories of medicine. Yeah. And just, and the, the fact that kind of they were being actively written out at the time and, and that so many doctors are really explicitly dismissing the knowledge that, uh, that traditional midwives had 
because uh, they're like, no, 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 we can do it better. And then they cause a lot of problems of their own. And they never, they don't really kind of go back and go, okay, maybe there's some people who know more about this than we do because they've been doing this for a while. Uh, because they get caught up in their own narrative of progress that that we sometimes, I think, that we often just allow to uh, overwhelm all the ways we talk about history and especially history of science. So speaking about narratives, uh, there are there are like Sims defenders out there, <laughs> contemporary people who argue common arguments that you hear about like Confederate statues and other other bad dudes that we sh- probably shouldn't be honoring that, you know, they're like a product of their time. And that um, in Sims's case, um, there's a lot of discussion like um, in sort of like medical ethics about um, consent and that in Sims's time, there was no such, uh, there was certainly no such uh, legal con- concept of, informed consent which is something that we use now that we um use now because well because of nazi people were terrible yes and because we fought a world war over yeah (laughs) things like the tuskegee syphilis experiments there's a lot of awful stuff like that that you can read about but the argument that sims um lived in a time when there was um no legal conception of informed consent even though the I don't know, human idea of consenting to be, have someone do things to you definitely existed yeah. <laughs> and has forever. But there's all of this um, sort of controversy about like um, consent and if it's a real thing and if it exists and if if you're enslaved, if you can consent. And there's these like very, what I think are very disingenuous um, arguments about um that if we say that enslaved people couldn't consent, then we're taking away their agency or something. So there, there's there's just a lot of like actual like philosophical like ethical stuff that people we use this um, in the biomedical ethics course that I TA'd for. We use this case, and um, there's a lot of really thorny stuff there. And I also wanted to say just. Um, not to be like super explicit or anything, but what a fistula is so that we have kind of more material idea of what we're talking about, about what Sims did to develop his procedure. A fistula is um, a tear between the vaginal wall and the rectum. And uh, they can happen in childbirth sometimes. And like Rebecca said, more common if you're using forceps. Um and it's extremely painful and it you sort of um, that wall is supposed to keep various things separated. And when they're not, you get infections and rashes and like it's extremely uncomfortable thing to live with. But also um, being operated on without anesthesia <laughs> and without, you know, being able to properly consent to that procedure is something else entirely. So another thing that people always argue about is like, oh, well, of course these women would have wanted to have their fistulas fixed. And no one ever talks about the ones that he, like his procedure failed on, um, who just had to endure a horrifying pain. Am I right in saying that um, it was not that anesthesia wasn't available, it was that he made a choice not to use it? That's yes. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was newish, but available. 
Uh, and, and in fact, uh, so Sims goes on to found the quote, first women's hospital in America in Manhattan, uh, which is another, again, speaking of narratives, fascinating framing, because I don't know then what you were, cause that it shows that no one's calling the, uh, the, whatever his, his medical offices and on his plantation weren't a women's hospital. Uh, and that says something about the way in which then you frame uh, the um, the operations he was doing on on the enslaved women. Uh, but at that uh, that women's hospital in Manhattan, uh, he did use anesthesia. So he perfects this uh, this technique. He goes he then uses it in Manhattan with anesthesia on mostly white women. Yeah, so he was selective in how he used anesthesia and that was something that was reserved for for the for white women. The idea of consent in these in these stories of what Sims did it reminds me a lot of that Teen Vogue article that came out uh I guess it's been several months at this point where it was arguing that like uh no, they, they weren't the, the slave women weren't mistresses. Like they didn't have the power to uh, deny, you know, what was happening to them. And so that in these contexts, no, let's stop calling them mistresses because that gives them a type of agency that they were by nature denied by the contract of what slavery was. Um, and I think that that applies in this case uh, to medical consent as well. Yeah. And and the other thing that sort of relates to uh, the the particular medical condition and consent as well is that the other factor that leads to fistulas more often and the, and the factor that makes it in certain very poor areas of the world uh, still a, um, a serious issue today is that women, it's, it's more likely to occur in women that are malnourished and young. And part of the reason why women, uh, the the women um, that Sims owned were pregnant when malnourished and young is that they were slaves. And part of their um, expectation is that they were going to breed more slaves. And so there was an effort to uh, force women to be pregnant, uh, even if they medically should not have been. Uh, so it's, it's another really important issue. And and I do want to talk just a little bit more about race in this as well. Sims and uh, and many of his medical colleagues uh, did had this thought that they had mastery over all women's bodies, but also generally generally believed uh, that white women's bodies were worth protecting and black women's bodies were disposable. So this comes this idea that he goes and he experiments on black women. He perfects the surgery. He then brings that uh, those techniques to a hospital catering to white women in Manhattan, where he then uses anesthesia and has a lot of success because he has worked out all of the kinks. Um, and that's where he makes a name for himself. Uh, he treats wealthy white women from various, you know, um, 
wealthy Manhattan families. He travels around Europe and he operates on princesses. Uh, and and that's and that's how he becomes famous and that's how he becomes a very successful doctor. And he and because of his fame and success among wealthy people, that's why he has a statue. Uh, so he doesn't have a statue for helping, you know, womankind in general. Uh, he he has a statue for helping a certain kind of woman. And if he had just focused on helping poor women or women of color, he probably wouldn't have gotten a statue. Uh, and I think that that's important to the way that we think about these memorials is why were they memorialized at the time? And how does that relate to the way that we tell people's stories and uh, and who kind of really benefits and and doesn't when uh, medical breakthroughs are happening. Yeah, I think that is a really great point. And also it comes back to kind of what some of the stuff that me and Anna are trying to do with our project is like kind of theorizing these absences. Well, who's who's absent from that story of Sims, really? Right. Um, who's absent from that progress? Um, and uh, it reminds me of the the birth control trials that were um, put that were uh, in Puerto Rico in the 1950s. And those were started by Gregory Pincus and John Rock. And um, that they they tested the pill um, at an extremely high dosage um, on women who um, barely spoke English. Um, so they even if they could somehow argue informed consent, I mean, you, you've got the power dynamic of, you know, the, the colonizer coming into the, a colonized country um, and persuading women who barely speak English to partake in this medical trial. Um, and the they suffered extremely bad side effects from such a high dosage of the pill. And then by the time, you know, it gets approved in 1960 for women in the United States, then, you know, we've been able to adjust the dosage or whatever to where some of the the side effects aren't quite so severe. But um, it hasn't been until recently that we even acknowledge that that story happened. Um, and so who who benefited from from that? And it was um, white women and who was kind of the fodder for progress. It was the the women of color in Puerto Rico. So now's a good time to switch over to uh, Jennifer Young, who's going to join us to talk about her uh, essay that she wrote for the November issue. Jennifer wrote about Dr. Hannah Stone and her work in activism in women's health at the Birth Control Clinic Research Bureau, which we now know as Planned Parenthood. So welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Uh, if you could tell everyone a little bit about yourself and maybe give us a quick rundown of your article. Sure. So I am a museum educator. I currently work at the New York Historical Society, and I'm also a freelance uh, public historian and writer. Um, and my favorite thing to do is to go into the archives and find stories like this one that tell about uh, the lives of men and women, particularly women, um, of the past several centuries, um, and to investigate and, and to tell their stories, not only because they're worth knowing for their own sake, but because there's so much the past can tell us about the present. Um, and this story in particular is about um, Dr. Hannah Stone, who is one of the pioneering figures of the birth control movement. Um, and she's someone that you don't hear much about. She's not a real public figure or a name um, within the history um, for most people um, of the birth control movement. 
And she was the medical director of the first legal birth control clinic in the United States, which opened in New York City in 1923. And Dr. Stone worked closely with more public figures like Margaret Sanger. Um, but Dr. Stone's work was as a clinical practitioner. Um, so she saw over 10,000 10, patients a year um, and published in, in journals um, and was well known within medical circles for her work. Um, but she was less known in the public sphere. So I thought that was an interesting um, approach to to the topic is to talk about someone who who was doing this work and really hasn't been recognized as much as other people. So in your in your essay, you talk about how uh, Hannah Stone worked with Margaret Sanger. And can you talk a little bit about how uh, Sanger's formidable reputation uh, shrouded others like Stone who were really invested in the work of public health and activism? Well, I think, um, I wouldn't use the word shrouded, but I think that, I mean, social movements need a lot of different kinds of people. And Margaret Sanger was very good at being on the front lines and getting arrested and knowing all the right people um, and knowing who to call. And like, she knew, she knew the judges, she knew people in the uh, political and social establishments in New York. And that was crucial for doing the kind of behind the scenes work that needed to get done. Um, but Sanger herself knew that in terms of the actual goals of the birth control movement of serving women, particularly the most vulnerable women um, and working class women, that you needed doctors and medical professionals to do that work. And that was not Sanger's role. She was not a doctor. Um, and so she sought out people like Dr. Stone who were able to do that work. Um, and she really cultivated those relationships and, uh, and tried to, to bring those people into her orbit because without them, her work would be nothing. Uh, you write in your essay that the interwar period, so the period between World War I and World War II, was, quote, a watershed moment in the history of birth control. So can you explain a little bit about what was going on during this time that made it such an important historical period? Yeah, it's really interesting because uh, we have this moment where um, in 1916, Sanger opened her first birth control clinic in Brooklyn actively to challenge the New York state law. Um, and the clinic was almost immediately closed because it was considered illegal and Sanger was arrested and spent time in jail. Um, but she knew that there, there had to be a way to, to challenge those laws. Um, and this was, you know, the height of a certain period of the women's movement, um, right at the time where it was just right on the cusp of women in New York getting suffrage. Um, and there was a lot of, um, a lot of power in the women's movement and a lot of, um, interest in both in suffrage and in issues like birth control. They were very much tied together in terms of the rights of women and, uh, and tied into these discussions on, on motherhood and agency. And so Sanger, um, kept pushing at these legal boundaries and taking her course, her case to court. And uh, in 1918, um, the New York Court of Appeals ruled that a licensed physician could provide information for the cure or prevention of disease. And that provided the precedent for doctors in New York State to provide birth control. And it's interesting, it's kind of a backdoor um, way to provide birth control because this was, of course, right at the end of World War I. And there was a lot of concern about 
um, servicemen coming home with um, sexually transmitted diseases. And there was a huge uh, issue with syphilis at the time. And so the medical establishment was quite concerned that, you know, for the health of men, um, that that syphilis was going to be a public <laughs> health crisis. Um, and so they realized that birth control was was a way to get around that, um, particularly condoms. Um, and so this was this really was a backdoor way to um, to find licensed physicians like Dr. Stone, who would be able to work with the birth control minute movement in these clinics to provide contraceptives and contraceptive advice. And so Sanger took that um, that ruling, and in 1923, she financed and organized the um, Birth Control Clinical Research Bureau, um, with headed by this female physician, Dr. Stone. Um, and, to, and they were advising and instructing patients, which was within the law. And, um, and that was legal. So that was how they got started. Cool. And I want to give a little bit of context about um, the 1918 uh, court case, um, because that was important in helping uh, Hannah Stone kind of bypass charges from the raid on the clinic in 1929, right? It was that ruling that allowed her and her staff to get off. Exactly, because uh, she was, she and her staff were licensed medical professionals. They were allowed to provide information for the prevention or cure of disease. And what happened in 1929 is that the New York Vice Squad um, raided the clinic and arrested all of the doctors and nurses. Um, but the charges couldn't stick because even though they were actively looking for any kind of gray area where the the clinic would have been prescribing birth control because the law was interpreted in such a way that it was broad enough that what they were doing was legal. And um, the case um, was kind of infamous in New York at the time because the um, the police confiscated medical records. They just took boxes and boxes of confidential medical records out of the clinic. And even the members of the medical establishment who were not in favor of the clinic or with birth control in general were absolutely horrified that this was an absolute violation of, of doctors and patients' rights. And so it was it was illegal, but it also had a lot of, um, the, the case had a lot of public sympathy for the birth control movement. And so it was clear that the judge was not going to to proceed with the case and the charges were dropped. Just because, yes, they they got off, but the clinic was raided. There was uh, this whole idea of, you know, they took the records and they uh, and they made them uh, public. And even though it was technically legal, it was still frightening and dangerous to uh, to do this kind of work. Uh, and that's just really fascinating to me. And it shows that sort of legal watersheds only give you so much. That's for sure. And one of the things that I found really interesting about this story, and one of the reasons I got interested in it, is because I was um, I was interested in general in the way that women medical professionals um, ended up becoming activists almost without without realizing it or without going consciously in that direction because the work they had to do involved such precarious situations. Um, and so, you know, Dr. Stone um, was not entirely a, a political person to begin with, but she ended up 
becoming an activist and getting arrested and having her picture in the paper. Um, and she did all this work actually for free. Um, she worked for Sanger's Clinic for 16 years and never took a salary um, because, you know, she started out as an idealistic young doctor who wanted to provide, you know, access to, to health for, um, for women, particularly working class women. And, um, and that was almost impossible to do within the mainstream medical establishment. So it was only clinics like this, um, or oftentimes the, um, my work started out looking at the, um, the birth control clinic that existed on 14th street and fifth Avenue that was run by uh, a communist, um, insurance cooperative called the International Workers Order. And they they ran their clinic there from 1936 until about 1950. Um, and of course, you know, it was an amazingly progressive clinic that served thousands of women, um, but it was, it was communist affiliated and so it was shut down. Um, and so the doctors who worked there also, Dr. Sherry Appel, um, who was the director of that clinic, also, you know, very committed to women's public health um, was totally anti-communist, but the work that she wanted to do had to be done in these like marginal contexts because mm -hmm. that's where women's public health was being served and not in the mainstream medical establishments. So I think that's really interesting and speaks a lot to what we're going through today. So I wanted to ask about eugenics. Um, so in the interwar period, um, one thing that's not as marginal as people um may assume is the eugenic movement in the United States. And you write that Dr. Stone was anti-eugenic and that even if she didn't sort of directly oppose Sanger, who was much more in favor of eugenics, she integrated um, anti-eugenic stance into a book called um, A Marriage Manual, a practical guidebook to sex and marriage that she co-authored with her husband, um, Abraham Stone. And so I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, that book and about Dr. Stone's stance on eugenics and how it sort of worked with Sanger's more well-known stance on eugenics. Yeah, this was a, an aspect of Dr. Stone's story that I found quite fascinating because apparently if you delve into the, the history of the marriage counseling movements in the United States, uh, Dr. Hannah Stone and her husband, Dr. Abraham Stone, were, were quite instrumental in this. So they weren't just thinking about the um, the clinical factors of, you know, health and reproduction. They were also really thinking about, well, what makes a good relationship? What makes a healthy relationship? And a lot of that, of course, has to do with having control and agency over your own knowledge of your own body. Um, and so that was what they worked on was this marriage manual, uh, Practical Guidebook to Sex and Marriage, which came out in the mid-1930s. And uh, you can look at it on archive.org. It's available. Um, and the book is written as a hypothetical dialogue between um, a married couple and a doctor. And they based it on thousands of conversations they'd had with couples um, at the birth control clinic and um, in their marriage counseling. And, uh, and so it's written with, you know, these young people in mind who had, who really have no idea about their own bodies or about, you know, the reproductive system, reproductive health. And so they ask a whole bunch of questions that, you know, might be embarrassing, like, um, you know, can a woman have an orgasm? Does penis size matter? Like all of these kinds of things. And they patiently go through and, and explain in very accessible language, like all the answers to these questions. And then the, the, in the middle of the book, they have a whole section about eugenics. 
And, uh, and so the question is, how do we know, the couple asks, if we are fit to breed? And of course, this ties in very much to, um, to the whole issue of eugenics that was going on at the time. Eugenics was both a scientific movement and, of course, a really uh, populist social movement um, that really stressed um, social engineering. Um, and Margaret Sanger was very much a part of that. Um, and so this is a major difference between Sanger and Stone. And Sanger wrote a lot of publications um, in the 20s and 30s where she, um, she talked about what it meant to be fit or unfit and moved away from a scientific understanding of that to a social understanding, particularly with regards to immigrants and racialized language around immigrants. And what's interesting about this marriage manual is that it very much, um, without speaking against Dr. Sa or Margaret Sanger directly, um, goes against that. So she, the Stones say that um, fitness or unfitness is could only be described as a medical category that would need to be determined by a doctor. And that in some cases, um, there are groups of people who should be restricted from reproduction, such as people with epilepsy. But they even say, even in those cases, care should be taken to distinguish between environmental and hereditary factors. So they're trying to be very clear that there is maybe a tiny medical basis for these eugenics categories, but really overall, we're talking about social categories. Um, and they say that once eugenics moves from a strictly medical discourse, like evidence-based discourse, um, to categorizing people as inferior or superior, that the, their claims of the eugenics movement become subject to serious criticisms. So they stress overall that social and economic factors are more important than genetics. Um, when it comes to understanding fitness and unfitness and who should be allowed to reproduce and who should not. So it's just a small section of the book, but it is very telling because it does in many ways go against um, what Sanger was saying and writing. Um, and from, again, from a very evidence-based medical perspective. Uh, one thing uh, it's, it's interesting in, in, hearing you describe that because uh, it obviously that's still a very sort of ableist way of looking at reproduction, but you can see the way that Stone is kind of trying to find sort of a, a, a chink in, in that conversation that was so popular around eugenics and, and trying to uh, stave off the way that it was becoming wildly popular, even if there is still things that are problematic in that, in that conversation. That's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she was very much of her time. So yeah. there's much, there's obviously a lot to critique in terms of the book overall and in that section in particular. Um, but it's interesting that she was trying to, to carve out a space yeah. where she was challenging these really overwhelmingly prevailing ideas. Uh, so in 1942, the American Birth Control League changes its name to Plan parenthood as we we know it of as today uh, and you write this change quote reflected an orientation towards nuclear families and the private sphere and away from activism and the public and public health so uh, why do these changes matter and how do you think it ultimately affected women's health care well it's interesting because 
birth control really does go mainstream after the mid-1930s. By 1937, the American Medical Association, which is not a progressive organization, which is very mainstream medical establishment, um, actually endorses birth control for prescribed by physicians for married couples. Um, and that's and and so it moving away from all of this language of the early birth control movement about women's rights and about quote unquote voluntary motherhood, we move into this realm where we're actually moving into the post-war baby boom. And it's just assumed that um, having children is good and important. And that's the the pronatalism of the Cold War period, um, which a lot of scholars have written about. And um, and so increasingly the birth control movement uh, uses that language and, and speaks in those terms to talk about birth control. Um, and so what this meant a lot of the time was um, Sanger and her colleagues reaching out to um, state public health departments and um, and providing them with information about birth spacing. So again, it's this notion of we assume that women are going to get married and have babies, um, but we want to um, provide for their their health and well-being um, while, while they do that. And so the best way to do that is to tell health professionals as well as women um, that they should not have more than one baby a year um, and that they should focus on like statistics on uh, infant mortality rates for for children that are born too close together and things like that. So it really is a, a significant change in in the focus of what women's health is about. Okay, that is a good place for us to wrap up today. Uh, thank you, Jennifer, for joining us. Her piece is titled An Emancipation Proclamation to the Motherhood of America. We'll be including that in the show notes so you can read the full piece there. But thanks, Jennifer, for joining us and uh, going a little bit deeper into some of the issues that you explored in that essay. So thanks. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much. Take care. It was Bye. really great to talk to you. Bye. Bye. Before we wind down the show with our one annoying thing, we'd like to thank everyone who donated during our October fundraising campaign. Each donation has helped us fund the magazine and podcast for another year. We raised a total of $3,205, which is $200 more than our goal, and we gained $65 in monthly pledges. We wouldn't have been able to do any of this without our excellent supporters. Glinda Windorf, Shannon Seppel, Pamela Gossen, Julie Pagano, Cheryl Muck, Kendra West, Patty and Richard McNeil, Thanks, Mom and Dad. Robert Hesselberg, Melissa Acosta, Brian Sletter, Lydia Pine, Brian Burnham, Irma Mason, Sheila Liming, Victoria Kernut, Samuel Cohen, Carrie Adkins, Chris Martiniano, Megan Formato, Lisa Abbott, David Castillo, Jenna Ton, Kathleen Shepard, Eileen McGinnis, Michelle Nordwald, Jane Davis, Joseph Klett, Chelsea Boley, Alan Raidbaugh, Megan Raby, Caitlin McDonough, Joanna Berman, Catherine Coyle, Shirley Hesselberg-Wagner, and Laura Burgers. And our new Patreon patrons are Krista Bennett, Nathan Kapoor, Kristen Shimon, Kasha Roth, Anthony Shavetta, 
Lori Carson, and Christopher Swenson. Again, thank you all so, so much. At the end of every podcast, hosts will unburden themselves with one thing in the news, their work, or the world in general that's just annoying the crap out of them. This is one annoying thing. So this month, I'm annoyed at the 52% of men that say they haven't benefited from women having affordable birth control. I think progress already... Ew. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Seriously. <laughs> I think progress article with that exact title made the rounds on social media recently. And uh, even though it was published back uh, in March after the first zombie corpse of Obamacare repeal, Staggered into the House chamber, consuming Planned Parenthood and Medicaid funding in its wake. Um, So when this article first came out, I tweeted out the article with something to the effect of, uh, and 100% of women don't give an F what men think. And I still stand by that sentiment. Um, But I also want to unpack some of this stuff here because it doesn't, what I said, doesn't really get to the larger problems at play. Um, the research in this article comes from the nonpartisan polling firm Perry Undem, who conducted a survey on a representative sample of registered voters. Before the article gets to that 52% figure of the conducted survey, it breaks down how voters believe affordable access to birth control affects families and communities at large. So this is how that breaks down. 72% of voters in the survey believe that access affects the financial situation of families. said it affects stress in relationships. 62% believes it affects women's ability to have financial stability. 68% said that it affects the well-being of families, not just the financial aspect, but overall well-being. 67% said it helps the economy, so economy at large. And then 70% said that it helps their community at large. So beyond the interpersonal benefits of a woman having access to birth control, most of the people in this survey believe that it does benefit the larger economy and community. And that's good. It does do all of these interconnected things. But here's where that 52% comes in. From the same survey that found most people believe birth control access benefits personal relationships as well as the larger economy and community, 52% of men still don't think that they benefit from women having access to birth control. (laughs) And it's like they don't see themselves as living in society with the rest of us, (laughs) sharing and benefiting from these communities and this economy. And I'm annoyed that the men in this 52% don't seem to have the critical thinking skills to make these connections. And the failure to do so could influence the way that they vote and the amount of effort they put into stopping Obamacare repeal efforts. Um, I mean, we already know that... uh, women are the ones making the majority of the phone calls to their representatives, right? When we have these massive pleas to our representatives to not kill us by taking away our health health insurance. So um, women are already doing more of the work in this regard anyway. Um, so it shouldn't have to take a piece of legislation affecting you personally to care about it, but oftentimes it does. And if men don't see birth control as personally benefiting them, they might not fight. They might fight for it a little less, even if they do think women should have birth control. Um, And for men on the right, it's clear that unless they are trying to pry birth control from our cold, dead hands, um, that they aren't going to prioritize it as a necessary part of healthcare at all. So 
That's why I'm annoyed. <laughs> it's a reminder to me that so many issues that are sort of seen as related to women are just invisible to a lot of men. Like they're just not paying attention. And that is infuriating. I don't even have anything to, I can't even, I, I don't have anything to add. <laughs> that ridiculousness. Oh, that's but annoying. You said you. earlier. <laughs> so what's a, What's annoying me, I don't know if annoying is the right word or just like I've now tumbled into a pit of despair. So apparently there is a provision in the new proposed cut, cut, cut tax bill. That's what <laughs> our esteemed president wants to call it. Um, I kind of mentally crunched the numbers this morning. And uh, if it passes, I'll probably have to quit my PhD because I won't be able to afford the the tax bill on my waiver. So. Um, this is a really good way to kill higher education. It's basically like a guided missile to um, blow up the the PhD pipeline. And it's going to crush so many people. And it's going to ensure that um, the only people who can go to grad school are independently wealthy. And so all of the privilege and narrowed perspective that comes with that is just going to be exacerbated by those being the only people who are allowed to get PhDs, um, the only people who are allowed to go to grad school. So it's um, it's perfect for Republicans who hate higher education um, and who have a chip on their shoulder, I guess, about not being smart or something. Uh, and so they just <laughs> want to torpedo everyone else's chance of um, higher education and blow up the ivory tower. Um, so it's just, I'm, uh, I'm really bummed because I've spent four and a half years, um, going through my master's and then, um, the first part of my PhD and I just got back from a really productive research trip for my dissertation. And, you know, there's a possibility that I just won't be able to finish any of that. And, um, I'm sure as some of our listeners know, the Academy is not particularly friendly to you if you don't have a PhD. Um, I can't get a job in it without that. Um, yeah. So, like I said, not so much annoyed as just a little bit devastated. Um, call your call your senators and your congressmen and tell them that I want to keep going to grad school. <laughs> and I... Uh, I was annoyed at some of the conversations that I saw. I didn't actually participate in any of the conversations about this on, on Twitter. Um, I just kind of watched them creepily adding in my own mental notes. Um, and there was one that I saw, I mean, everyone just Im immediately yeah. started thinking about how this affects people in STEM. And that was really <laughs> annoying because they already get paid more as PhD students than those of us in the humanities. So that was annoying. Um, and I was also annoyed at a, at a tweet that I saw, and I don't think that it was ironic and I don't think it was a joke. I think this person was serious when they said, well, this is a way to solve the, um, the hiring crisis for, uh, humanities majors. What? And it's like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm oh sorry. Oh my God, what? Uh, <laughs> 
that's just a, that's a ter- that that's a terrible thing to say. Yes, there is a hiring crisis for people in the humanities. Um, taking people's uh, chances away entirely uh, <laughs> is not a solution, even a little. Bit. Even if that was meant ironically, like that's just such a cruel joke to make. <laughs> Being yeah, people in the like job market in the humanities right now are like. <laughs> Everybody's in therapy. People can't feed themselves. They have to fly across the country six times a year to do interviews that go nowhere. Like it's awful, and it's not—it's not funny to make a joke like that, even if it was a joke. And what you said about the the conversation sort of being dominated by STEM, in addition to what you said about the fact that they get paid way more than humanities uh, graduate students do, uh, it just—it contributes to this. Um, really sort of problematic assumption or sort of popular understanding of um, who is in grad school and what they do. And it's just another way that like people who aren't scientists or aren't engineers um, or who aren't doing something that this society, I guess, has decided is worthy um, just don't matter anymore. So, yeah. Yeah. Like they frame it in terms of uh, usefulness, uh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's right like, so that if yeah if there were less humanities phds like well that's not that big a deal but we need more engineers and in fact we don't need more engineers we're like at capacity on engineers too so right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. and and it, it's like it god that whole yeah that that comment about oh well this will this will solve the crisis it's like there are lots of people who get PhDs who don't get tuition waivers, and what they do is take out loans and make the also student loan crisis worse. And so, because it's not like that's going to stop universities from pushing to try to get as many students as possible, and it will just continue to be a hot mess uh, that just harms even more people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that was more of a uh, one depressing thing. Yeah, than sorry. Thing. <laughs> That's okay. It's, there's a lot of overlap. <laughs> we can be. This is just our yeah. chance to be furious about stuff. So yeah. yeah. So what's what's annoying you, Rebecca? Uh, so I am going to uh, circle us back to birth control. Uh, so of course, as we mentioned at the top of the show, in. Uh, Recent months, there has been uh, renewed efforts to uh, limit or, or to to expand, actually, the kinds of businesses and organizations that can deny birth control coverage. Uh, and that means that a lot of these arguments uh, defending birth control that have to, we have to continue to to have uh, have have returned. And they often follow a similar pattern, and they followed a similar pattern this time, uh, which is that a group of people start saying, well, birth control is super important, not just to uh, women who are having sex, but to women with many different kinds of health issues for which uh, birth control is often prescribed. Uh, and so we need to defend birth control because it's not just about morals and ethics and uh, behaviors. It's also about these other health issues. Uh, and then 
we see a backlash to that that says, well, but all reasons for taking birth control are valuable. Women don't like say that it's only okay if uh, you're doing it for certain reasons because uh, we Charles shouldn't be controlling women here and uh, and taking birth control because like these two camps are getting into a fight and they're it's both they're both true and they're both important. It, it represents that any time discussion of women's sexual behavior uh, becomes part of the conversation, women are going to end up being shamed for what they do. So uh, women who are taking birth control because they want to be sexually active are being shamed. Women who are taking birth control uh, and are not sexually active, but have other reasons for taking birth control are being shamed. And uh, we refuse to uh, treat hormonal birth control like a medical treatment, even though the medical establishment are the ones who turned it into, like, as, as we were talking about earlier, uh, medicalized uh a lot of women's reproduction uh so we get like all of the bad parts of that but then we also can't just treat it like a objective medicine without like all of these crazy ethical quote-unquote ethical conversations that are infuriating yeah and i think the other troubling part to this is how um women's health is seen as some sort of like public debate that my my medical choices are public debate and I have to bear my soul about why I need uh, birth control in order for it to be legitimate um, for some asshole on the internet. And, and it's none of your business. It's none of anyone's business because it is a, yeah. Yeah, we don't have conversations about why people take aspirin. Maybe they take aspirin because they're sore from having too much sex. You don't know, but we don't have that conversation. And that's one of the the whole idea of like pathologizing certain certain bodies is that those bodies that we pathologize are the ones that, you know, their health choices are up for public debate, right? Um, it's one of the things that Roxane Gay talks about um, as being a fat woman is that Everyone tells her to go see a doctor or everyone, you know, um, eat better, um, that everyone disposes medical advice or assumes that she doesn't have a doctor that she sees anyway, you know, is that these these bodies that don't conform to that cis uh, white male body becomes pathologized. And then we get to discuss their medical choices and their um, private conversations with their doctor on the Internet, you know, <laughs> Anyway, sorry, that, that got me all hot and bothered. <laughs> no, I think that that's, yeah, it's part of the big point. Yeah, someone's medical choices being up for debate is infuriating. Uh, well, I think <laughs> that's a good place for us <laughs> to stop. We circled back around to the beginning of our episode. Everything is connected. Um, <laughs> everything is connected um, in a really awful yeah. way. <laughs> in that everything is terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, we are dedicated to making Lady Science accessible, and we are looking for someone to donate their time to help us transcribe our episodes each month. So if you are interested in that, please shoot us an email at ladiescienceinfo at gmail.com. 
If you liked our episode today, then please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. That is how other people are able to find us. And if you have questions about any of the segments today, tweet us at at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. To sign up for our monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea for an article and more, visit LadyScience.com. We are an independent magazine, and we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit LadyScience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter at at LadyXScience. Science.